Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to a new episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, Sam Elliott, your host. Today I'm talking to a debut novelist, uh, Bernard Gollate, about his debut novel, The Origin of Me. Just a little bit about uh, Bernard before I get the ball rolling with the interview itself. So Bernard's had a pretty interesting and storied life. He has worked in the animation industry with Hanna-Barbera and then later working for Walt Disney in a multimedia agency. Then he came back to good old Oz. I was working in Australia uh, doing uh, the Sydney Harbour Bridge climb tours as well as illustrating books for young readers. And he now currently teaches programs on Sydney, early Sydney life and archaeology of historical sites across the city. That makes perfect sense to me because The Origin of Me is a very unique novel in that uh, ostensibly it starts off frame within this sort of coming for age or coming of age sort of story about a uh, 15 year old character Lincoln Locke trying to learn his way in life along with uh, kind of the shifting dynamics between family members. But then it kind of goes into this really sort of delightfully or borderline surreal sort of way in which he finds himself kind of drawn or happens across this book, My One Redeeming Affliction, and then that kind of sparks forward the remainder of a large portion of his particular story. So there's a story within a story there. I haven't encountered something like that in a good uh, good long while, hot minute. The last time I can think of one or what springs to mind is very, very different sort of uh, story as by its possession. But still, it was kind of uh, similar in the regard that there was uh, one person kind of doing a bit of sleuthing and then having this uh, resonance with this uh, this story and then that kind of defined their own sort of present day life. So I'm going to talk to uh, Bernard about that and in, in how that's kind of inspired. But there's a lot of different stuff we're going to be covering because the, the story itself, yeah, is a very unique one. There's a lot of different characters in there that he's kind of managed to crawl into this this novel. So everyone give a big round of applause to Bernard uh, talking to me about his debut novel, The Origin of Me. Bernard, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you today? Ah, very well. Thank you, Samuel. And thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Excellent. It was a pleasure all around. So let's, uh, let's start off with an oldie but a goodie. Where did the idea for Origin of Me originate from? Where did it come from? The absolute origin of the origin was um, a, a children's book when I asked, uh, when my publisher at the time asked me to pitch an idea. They asked if anything was on the boil and I just came up with this idea of being brewing in my head to write, to do another children's book about a kid that was somehow not quite right and had some genetic problem and it was going to be called DNA Spells Dan and they actually liked the idea. So it was going to be a picture book about having some kind of flaw and, and his parents sent him off to correct him and stuff like that. So I went away to write a synopsis for it and it turned into a 21-page synopsis, which was a little bit big for a children's book. So then I thought, oh, maybe that'll make a good graphic novel. Um, and then so it started off like that. And then along the, along the way of writing it, I dropped the images, the idea of images, because it was taking too long to write. Interesting. So, so, wow. Okay. So there's only that, that one core. And then, so the character of Lincoln uh, kind of eventuated from there because it's a very unique uh, novel, Bernard, in terms of, so ostensibly it kind of starts off framed within this sort of um, coming of age story, like a pretty kind of standard coming of age story. But then I feel like you've obviously used your knowledge as a historian to then kind of balance it, but it just, Tell me more about like how that all kind of then came into fruition or tied in. Cause there's kind of like two different, almost very disparate stories here that you kind of like fuse them into this, this one awesome original novel. Yeah. The, um, the 19th century came from the fascination with that period. And part of the inspiration for the book, from the book was um, um, Kafka's metamorphosis as well, which I um, saw the play directed by Stephen Burkhoff, who wrote it from the, from Kafka's novella. And I saw his production of it when I was 13 years old and it just blew my mind. And I, so part of the, the, the essence of the story was also me and kind of coming into my burgeoning sexuality, which I kind of suppressed and the, the play kind of terrified me. And um, so about uh, 16 years later, I was actually in the play playing that role as well. And that Greg of the bug. Yeah, 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 hanging upside down on scaffolding and 
being the full kind of dung beetle or cockroach where it's not really specified. But I just love that that period because I ended up working that um, analyzing artifacts and teaching archaeology mm. from the early 19th century as well. So I wanted to kind of combine what I knew about that period in Sydney and create a parallel story. I was just intrigued by the idea of these objects telling stories themselves because they they hold they hold the owner's use of them and they show the mark of the owner. Mm, very and much. So that's why, yeah. So that's why the character Bert in the story has that that junkyard and all of the objects have stories to them. It's kind of the portal. Yeah. I did like Bert. I must say he was him and I, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, the homunculus. Yeah. Did I pronounce it yeah. correctly? Okay. I was like, yeah, not, not, not. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, look, because I'm kind of jumping ahead now, but I, I wanted to sort of delve into it because there's, we've kind of established that there's, there's what's sort of informed or you're inspired the story. Uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit of it about the amount of characters and how you've kind of like had to corral them into giving them enough kind of the equivalent of uh, screen time, as it were, because there's the, there's the list at the, the, the start, which was, which was helpful, but I, d- I didn't really need to kind of reference it or re- refer to it too much. I kind of felt like they were all kind of unique enough to not, um, not have to need it. But anyway, I'm, I'm going on a tangent. Tell me, Bernard, so how did you go about doing that? Cause there's, there's a lot of characters. Yeah. The, um, I, they, ju- I, I, I've, I've listened to other podcasts that you've done recently and some, I don't know, I can't remember who it was, but I, it was a really recent one where someone was talking about, or people, I, I've heard a number of authors talking about things coming into being as the story's being written. Mm. And, you come, and also, you know, that I, I don't know who it was, it's just really, uh, anyway, um, that idea of like the story revealing itself and sometimes characters revealing themselves and wanting, demanding more time. Mm-hmm. On the, Page. and some of them actually got you said corral like that there, there were there were way too many there were even more characters and that got um that got some of them just got taken right out but my editors actually um wanted to reduce at one i, I did so much editing work they wanted to reduce one of the characters and when they they did <laughs> they, they saw the error of their ways and they said bring it back but it was Bert, the character Bert, who's like He's my favourite contemporary character. Mm. Um, and I'm going, I was kind of devastated because they wanted him kind of like reduced. Mm. And then when mm. I did it, they said, what have you done? What have you done? Bring him back stronger like and more so. So he was the easiest one to write. And also Esther, who's in the 19th century story. I just felt her um, voice coming just through so strongly and so naturally writing in that 19th century kind of mannered way, which was really exciting to discover that, I found it easier to write in that style than in the kind of contemporary. So historic, you found the historical um, easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because it's a bit, just because of the mannered nature of it and that you can be a bit verbose, I suppose. And, and you know, in the contemporary, you have to be a bit more kind of on the mark, otherwise you just ramble, but you have that a bit of that luxury to be a bit more flowery in that 19th century style. I don't know. I was going to um, ask you. Yeah. Yeah, oh, you go. go. No, you go. You go. Oh, so, um, yeah, and just very quickly, a, a, another key was this idea that I wanted to um, create characters that all have, I'm not a, one single character. People ask you, who are you? But I wanted to dot, divide parts of myself um, and the age I'm at also. I'm at the, actually at the father's age, but I feel in spirit on the protagonist Lincoln's age. So, and then I was, and I kind of fear being an old, I live in King's Cross on my own. I thought, and I kind of fear being like Bert. So it's like, there's these things of the generations of myself in each of the characters. And that was intentional. Mm. I feel like, first of all, that shines through. And second, I can, I can see what you, what you're talking about there. Like there's different stages of your life when they inform the characters. So like a kind of, even if you're writing about someone that, you know, you haven't been for 20, 20 odd years or so, you can still do it with the, that earnestness that kind of, kind of shines through there. There's so much that I want to touch on. You kind of mentioned a couple of things there, but I want to kind of uh, go a little bit back to what you were saying there about the, the, you finding it easier to write 
the uh, historical story of an story um, of Esther and Edwin. Because on, on paper, the premise itself and the, the execution is actually difficult. It's, 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 you set yourself a tall order there, Vernon, because there's, there's two um, distinct, very different writing styles that you've, that, you've, that you've done there. You kind of touched on it there as well. Contemporary sort of um, writing is sort of denoted by, I, I, particularly, I guess, in Australia, it's a little bit different in other countries, but a lot of it's real, real to the, to the wild, razor, real pared back, minimalist type. And then, yeah, like you said, with the, with the historical it could be you it lends itself to be a lot more kind of flowery and you know verbose tell me a little bit about that though because you, you do have you you've, you've definitely done it you've got two different writing styles but that is not easy to achieve and sustain you know maybe for a short story you can kind of cheekily get away with it but for a kind of a lengthy novel that can be real <laughs> challenging yeah. so yeah, yeah a, a lot of it's coded as well mm. so um a lot of the the way Lincoln, the, the 15, 16-year-old speaks, is coded in a certain way so that you would even... It's about Sydney, but I'm hoping anyone can read it. But mm. there's a lot of um, stuff that he's saying and, and language he's using that is, once again, transcends the age he's at. So I can't... I, I allowed myself... I thought, I'm not going to try and sound like a 15 or 16-year-old. I'm going to use even language I used when I was that age and also language his parents would use and also his own particular vernacular. And then I, I minimised it and used subtext. And some people, and it's up to the reader, you know, like you don't want to spell everything out, but a lot of it's, um, there's a lot of coded references to things that he may not even know on purpose. Mm. So he sometimes says things beyond himself and some of it's picked up from... But it's not all like completely unrealistic because it's things that he might have learned from his um, elders, like from, say, Bert. He sometimes says oldie-worldie stuff, but it, I, I really subtly added in. So he's picking up that kind, that way of talking from Bert or his father when his father talks um, about advertising. There was a lot more of the plot of those other characters, like, say, his father had a much bigger story before and so I paired that back so much that no one could possibly understand what I'm referring to um, completely because the whole, you know, sometimes chapters have been excised in the process. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, you've touched on a couple of things there that I kind of wanted to delve into um, in a sec anyway. I just want to kind of like still fixate on the kind of nuts and bolts there. But um, tell me, because obviously, and you yourself are... Uh, 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 historian and a tutor as such about early Sydney history and oh that, that's like that's a over over um that's a bit exaggerated I'm not, I'm not a historian I teach you I um don't have a his, historian background but I've been working teaching um Sydney history for 15 years so okay. and teaching archaeology the archaeology of Sydney as as an educational guide at historic houses Sydney living museums and um Sydney learning adventures the rocks discovery museum Vaucluse House, Museum of Sydney, Hyde Park Barracks, lots of different places. But I'm not, I, I don't classify myself as a historian. Still, it seems to be like whether, whether or not like you, you might not have a master's in kind of that, it still seems like obviously that's that's something that you, you've kind of um, not just brushed up against, but it's something that's a passion that you, that has maybe subsequently, yeah. So tell me a little bit, yeah. so tell me a little bit about, because obviously, the story, and it's a question I want to ask later, but the story was something like a thousand, you, you mentioned in the acknowledgements at one point, it was about a thousand pages. So I wanted to know then with the research, if there was if there was a substantial amount of research that you conducted as well, and if that was another thing that you had to excise, like a big old chunk to kind of to kind of get it down there. And if you did, how did you go about retaining what you thought was important? Samuel, I'm an information dumper. <laughs> and they didn't like that <laughs> but I like it I, I I honestly I like that it was mad it was it was it was only 870 <laughs> um but I um I did a lot of research on any any topic I just went a little bit overboard and went down rabbit holes all the time and would read a whole book say or read a couple of books on eugenics or you know um 
genetics and um, about, you know, like human zoos and freak shows and something. So I did like so much research. Um, Edward William Cole is like the inspiration for, um, for George Pemberton. I just love that character, but a few bo books came out about him. Um, the Utopian Man, I forgot the author's name. And I was devastated because these books were coming out that I was like, but uh, which happens to everyone, but I was going, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? I'm going to make him not such a key character. So I researched him and I'm fascinated by him. Um, I love, I love um, that thing of going down the rabbit hole and finding out more and more information and the pairing it back is a bit problematic because mm. you, still, you still want the, um, the audience, the reader to, to be able to get the gist of it. Um, but it deals with, the book deals with some really heavy topics, but it's so such a light touch on those topics, and it was more it was heavier before, and that got taken out. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, yeah, I like that. It was darker, mm. and they kind of I think the editors wanted me to lighten it a bit. Hmm. I yeah. can. Yeah. I can. Mm, I can see that. Yeah. I can. I can see that. I can see that. That maybe it might have. Um, there's still dark moments, um, particularly in the contemporary um, sort of stuff with, with, with Percival and all, all that sort of um, uh, sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I can I can see that. So, but uh, one of the things that I always kind of uh, it's interesting then uh, for that moment because one of the things I always thought is that there was there was heavy stuff that was going on, not just within um, Lincoln's friends, but also naturally with his his parents and. And, uh, you know, kind of how he perceives them or how he's shifting sort of attitude towards what they've done or might not have done. But I always thought that there was kind of like a pretty sustained element of humour that kind of uh, ran through throughout. So, so that's, so wow, okay, it was, it was darker. So yeah, then... yeah, absolutely. With the humour, I think it's like um, that offset of, I think it sharpens the, the the more dire stuff to have the humor and i think the dire mm. stuff happens the humor you know when when they're when they're held close together so sometimes they're juxtaposed really closely as well mm. um yeah i a lot of stuff was a lot of stuff real just real and i kind of fictionalized you know like writers sometimes say the truth is you know like way stranger than the fiction you create from it um and a lot of stuff was revealed to me after I wrote it, I, I, like sometimes some of the stuff was questioned, especially the eugenics stuff, but I'd done so much research on it and it was kind of the going thing when, you know, it was, went through these a couple of decades of being really popular amongst academics and institutions. Mm. Um, so I wanted to really bring that out and kind of comment on what the, the, um, the, the ramifications of that now, especially re referencing different races or um, religions, stuff we often dehumanise and, and people, I think, um, don't understand the roots and why it's so horrific when, when you know, like dehumanising language is used because mm. it was done on purpose and it was done culturally to maintain the tenets of colonialism and imperialism, you know, and that's what Australia was based on and we're still grappling with that um and you still see it so often in the way politicians speak and the way we lionize our sportsmen and you, you know all that kind of stuff is so much part of our society still so i hope that came out but i also wanted to make it you know humorous um so that it wasn't too much of a bitter pill to swallow it was never too much of a bit of pill to swallow. And I mean, like, I, I do get that the eugenics and all those sort of sort of like antiquated kind of horrific views of um, human human zoos and, and freak shows and stuff like that. I liked all the stuff with like P.T. Barnum and and all that. I, I thought that that was, yeah, because that's, that's, and I can see your your interest in that, in that shining through with obviously kind of then touching on uh, the real big sort of topics, the dark ones, which you kind of just mentioned there, uh, which unfortunately are still stuff that was broached or kind of, you know, came to the fore 200 years ago and still unfortunately very, very contemporary and pervasive within current society. So that's, yeah. Absolutely, I do get, yeah. Yeah. Look, um, 
you've also mentioned, we, we talked a little bit about relationships or better, or maybe I just offhandedly mentioned it, but um, there's a lot of, there's a lot naturally with, with the book and because we've kind of also touched on the amount of characters, there's a lot of different types of dynamic relationships that are going on, albeit shifting. Um, one of the ones I actually probably liked and was, 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 the, was the most interested and I'm glad that it featured kind of uh, pretty prominently was Lincoln and his father and his sort of uh, attitude uh, to, towards him. And what I felt um, that this was something that you wanted to explore more within the contemporary setting, just because it, it affords it um, much more within than within the confines of the, the sort of the, the book itself, the historical fiction book, was I feel that, and again, this is this is interesting why it was originally a, started off its life as a kind of like an idea for a kid's book, because with this teenager setting, I feel like Lincoln at this age is now, you're at that age where you're growing up a little bit, so you no longer see your parents as these kind of demigods or angels where they never make an imperfect decision or, you know, an ill-advised decision. And you start to see them and humanise them, as it were. Um, and so a lot of that time is pushing up as re to recoil at, um, at this understanding, but then also to kind of like slowly, maybe originally begrudgingly, but then start to see things from their perspective. So without getting too much into it, obviously um, Lincoln's parents uh, have, have an issue or, or um, what is rumoured to have happened. And then that's kind of like the fallout from that or is still ongoing. So I wanted to know about it. Was that, was that something in which you, was Lincoln the sort of vessel for these sort of things that you could then go, okay, this is the leaving this sort of childhood into teenagerhood whereby you start to become more sensitive to your parents being flawed yeah. human beings and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. That was a really perceptive take on it. So thanks for that. It, um, I'm glad that that came across. I think it's um, there, there's a sense where um, there's this old, like there's a biblical proverb or like aphorism like about the sins of the father being visited on the sons to the third and fourth generation or something like that. And I, I always, I did biblical studies and I always found that really intriguing of like, the, the way that we carry um, generational stuff with us. And I wanted to create a crossover where he's becoming more adult. Lincoln's becoming more adult and his father's becoming more childish um, by having this freedom from the marriage. Um, but I also wanted to restrain that because I, and so he's kind of compromised. So he's seen these hanging out with his friend and these two um, very much younger women and Lincoln's like battling with not even being able to um, he, his, his sexuality is just burgeoning so he's really awkward about it but his father and his father's kind of more like the teenage one kind of getting out there and getting amongst it so I like the idea of this kind of reversal um, and I like the idea I think when I don't know like I like the idea of this, the, 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 um, that sensitivity of, like, like you mentioned, being able to accept, begin to accept flaws of the parents. And one of my, me and my younger brother talk about, he, his psychologist talk about this really often with my dad. And I don't know which book it was, but somewhere it said the, the saddest moment in a man's life is when he um, realizes he can overcome his father. And that just really, really just drove me a lot as well is that that sense of not necessarily physically being able to kind of pin your father down, but that sense of even in any way, like professionally or morally or, or in, a, in any of those ways where, where you, or in any of the ways that you see perhaps your parents being flawed or even being diminished in their capabilities. It, it's, I, that was kind of where part of the sadness came from me. And when I dealt with some of that and I was writing it, sometimes I thought it was overwrought and I didn't, I was going, oh, that's a bit crappy. But then other times when I read it, I just burst into tears reading what I'd written. So it's hard to pitch the right level, but I think everyone can relate to that parental thing and those changes that we go through. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I um I'm with you on the 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 balancing act of like sometimes feeling like it's overwrought because I guess when you're getting into 
the nitty gritty of of relationships, um, familial relationships like that, and uh, they're changing. Like you can, yeah. There's there, you're definitely balancing on the tightrope of of it becoming overwrought or melodramatic. But um, that's the only way in which you can yet yeah, to, to mind the good dark psyche familial shit is to is to kind of kind of <laughs> supplicate yourself to that and go okay you know like is this is this going to happen kind yeah. of thing i wanted to we, we haven't really delved into it all much i mean like you've talked about the the writing of uh you know the different the different eras the different writing styles and stuff like that but there was a bigger theme that i kind of liked and i wanted to ask you about with um with with the book um, my one, my one redeeming uh, affliction is uh, Lincoln. Obviously, was drawn to it. I mean, he happened across it to the library, but he was drawn to it. And then from there, it kind of uh, you know informed his story as well as resonated with him. And originally, it was kind of like a, I felt like it was it was kind of like uh, more of a whimsical thing. He's like, wow, this is this is you know this is crazy. Like he's just talking about me. And obviously, as the story progresses, it becomes more and more increasingly that it's it's you know all-encompassing as to how it has this kind of like lasting effect on him and his own his own contemporary life but I wanted to see from you because I got the impression that you feel that books in particular more than some other mediums more than more than films maybe maybe more even more than music but books in particular can afford this sense of power or have this resonance with a reader that can become uh, life-altering and I wanted to obviously with Lincoln, it's a little bit, it's 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 within the confines of that because it makes sense, yeah, because it then aligns with his story. But I feel like there was more of it. You use that as a way in which to then explain the story. But overall, I feel like there was a giant theme in there that you kind of like wanted to at least brush up against, which was about how powerful books can be with an individual. What do you think it is about books that can that can be so life-altering where at odds with maybe other mediums? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's um, that unexpected resonance you can mm. have with, with the writer. Um, you, so I've been reading, I've just got my stack of books with me here that I've been reading over the last year, and a lot of it's, it's mostly female writers from a very strong feminist perspective, and I... I, I don't know what, which one I read first, but I just went on this one after another. And I and earlier, a couple of years ago, I went into this kind of post-war and mid-war Australian women writers binge as well. It's this fascinating kind of lost era of um, books. A lot of text published, a lot of them. And there's so much to be discovered Um Elizabeth Harrow is the watchtower is just this psychologically taught and fraught and amazing book. And it just messed with my head. And I just, just reading that book, like she's such a master, just like this understated menace that gets in your head is just absolutely more grueling than any, I'm not into horror or like science fiction or anything particularly, but the psychological kind of thing it just left me really disturbed at this this guy's power over these two sisters um so yeah unexpected um resonance and then the fact that the story that the writer's written is again often really influenced by their life and I don't know about you Samuel but I, I went through a period where I went away from being able to kind of grasp the narrative so much as hearing the author's voice. Mm, mm. So especially when, you know, when, especially when you read a couple of their books and then you begin, you begin to get this kind of uber experience of reading where you can almost hear as well as the narrative, what the author's saying, knowing the author. Mm. And so you, and I think I mentioned, I actually mentioned it, I made some quote from Bob Sacklesai about getting to know, you know, these writers, all these people become your friends. And I think, I think that's what's exciting. It's like you really having to engage with your imagination and the time you invest, I think you begin to um, develop this kind of relationship. And I heard it said recently, it might have been on one of your podcasts, I don't know, but about um, this, or it might have been something to do with the Writers' Festival, I heard, but 
there's also an unspoken out of time fellowship between all readers mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that writer who wrote Pitney at Hanging Rock, I forgot, um, oh, Joan Lindsay. Yeah, you've 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 told me that's 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 oh, embarrassing. I'm not, I, I'm I love I love that book, and she yeah. is like all metaphysics and shifts in time and stuff like that, and this idea of everything existing at once. Mm. And I love that about books. I love that about books. It's like a it's like a film and a song in, in this set moment, and you have to experience it live and, and visual stuff. You have to be there and see it. But a book stays, and it just it lives for the period that you read it and beyond. Yeah. Yeah, you're so spot on. Um, I mean, like there was definitely at one point, and I could, I, I could see, I could see when a writer, and in the case of, of you, I could see when it's a when it's a subject that fascinates them, or this idea, like maybe this one modicum of a notion of an idea, where it, you know it's kind of captured or arrested them throughout, um, not just with the writing but with the process, but also the reading process as well. Because there was one point when something happens towards the end, and obviously Lincoln uh, weeps, weeps for this man that he will never meet kind of thing and I was like well that's just kind of surmises what you're talking there and it kind of like resonated with me because I'm like I can get behind that because that's something that that um would happen to me as a as, as a kind of um copious reader as well and it's it, it does work like that I feel um particularly later like like you mentioned with the the reading of um someone's writing you know if they're prolific and they've written several novels or if they've only written one but if they've written several then you can there's kind of the demarcation or the changes of of, of their life and because you know life's always this edifying thing whether you like it or not and most of the time unfortunately the lessons are harsh and harshly dealt but then you change perspective you know a lot of the time I feel like the older I've gotten the more mellow I've become with it all kind of thing but you know, if you read my, like my writing 10, 15 years ago, it'd be completely different. It's we're, we're constantly changing. And then I think that that kind of also touches into what you were saying about the connection as well, is that depending upon the, the time frame, because the book itself is, is frozen there in stasis, it, it's, it's there, but it's only engaged when it's you yourself that's picked it up and started reading it. Yeah, it's the symbiotic kind of like really cool thing. And I feel that that's the, like, compared to, cinema or music which again is it's incredibly you know stimulating and you know good food for the soul but i feel like what makes reading for me at least what's what makes it so unique is that uh this thing that yeah the symbiotic where it's like uh no two people can have the same understanding of it yeah because and and you yourself will never you'll never be privy to what someone else is seeing in their mind's eye when they're reading it yeah and it's this beautiful incredible linking of one's imagination so so an incredible writer's imagination with the reader's imagination there's nothing like it there's just nothing like it in the like a different medium it's just such a unique and staggeringly cool thing yeah absolutely you know i I don't know if you you picked it up i i also went really meta with the whole thing and wrote how to read my book in the book so there's um and it's kind of just a play thing. It's not, you don't have to like figure it out, but there's certain things people say and they're like instructions on how I've written a book. Like um, so a reviewer wrote that the book was um, too easily resolved, but that's the kind of joke that I did. Like I was kind of making, I was kind of playing with that on purpose of like how everything suddenly turns out. And the, the clue of that was when, they talk about like Scooby Doo things are mentioned, and in I don't, I don't know if you ever watched Scooby Doo. They go, I did, they, I, I did. You don't kids, and they like they pull the mask off, and it turns out to be someone familiar, like the caretaker or the janitor or someone's uncle or something. And so I did that on. I I was aware of that and did that on purpose of like this um, almost like a parody, and but the meaning to. The meaning for me is even deeper. I worked on Scooby-Doo when I was an animator and I, I worked on the on the, the original production. I worked on the last series of the original run of it. It was produced in Australia. Oh, really? Um, Get out of town? I didn't know that. Yeah, 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. So the last section, the last episodes were produced by Hanna-Barbera in Australia. And so that was just a really authentic part of myself, you know, doing that kind of thing. And also this technique of... Um, when they talk about um, the cabinet, when Pemberton talks about his cabinet of curiosities, he goes, we'll have like a um, 
something or other egg embedded in lava and it'll be next to like this thing that we create and there'll be a Roman coin and it's like the, the real thing is next to some mulchrum or whatever. Like, so, and that's what I also wanted to do. That was the thing on the book as well. So there was um, the fabrication and the metaphor and then there was the real thing. So with Lincoln, he's like got the growing this little stumpy tail thing but the real story is actually his friend Pericles and him coming to terms with his sexuality and they're side by side. And that goes to other things in the book where there's the created really far-fetched metaphor on purpose and it's fantastical. And next to it is my real, my truth coming along with it. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I was going to ask you about that because like uh, your, your provenance, the animation provenance was like, yeah, something that I found really fascinating and I wanted to know, and you kind of, I mean, you have sort of touched on it. So if you don't want to delve into it anymore, but I did want to know how that sort of informed your, your writing or if it didn't, or if it was like a complete departure from, from what you did. I mean, you kind of touched on it. If you feel like it's already rehashing what you've said, then don't delve into it more. Oh, but no, I did no. want you to kind of. No, no, not at all. Um, the animation thing is it was like, it was like, I felt like I was serving my time, like paying my dues. Cause it was like working in a factory, you just work in one department and you work really hard and you get calluses on your fingers from drawing so much in old school animation. I worked for Hanna-Barbera and I worked for Disney for a while after and worked on Winnie the Pooh and stuff like that. But you lose, it's, it's this paradox of when you're in this creative field and you're not being creative, you're just producing the work, but it's still creative. And I had an argument with someone once that was an artist and they said, you're not an artist. And I said, what's, a, what's the definition of an artist is often when someone makes money from their, uh, you know, someone can beaver away, say, painting, and they never have a showing or a gallery to sell a painting, and they don't get called an artist. Mm-hmm. But then you really successfully get called an artist when you're making money and famous. So what, what's the difference of doing something commercial and someone else's – they go, no, no, you're originating your own ideas. You're and so, okay, what about, you know, Damien Hurst and Warhol and all these other people that just get, you know, I, Y, Y, and all those people, they get – have mass production crews that manifest their vision. And so Samuel, to me, it was that I figured out this scheme is that you go from manifesting someone else's vision to manifesting your own vision to if you're really wildly commercially successful, having other people help you manifest your vision. Oh, so, so like they're like these stages and then it's massive. It's just a massive, massive honor to get published because People are manifesting or helping you manifest your vision, which is incredible, no matter how the book turns out, you know, having the design of the cover and your editors and your publisher and people backing you like that. So it's this collaborative thing. So that kind of taught me um, that kind of stance of going through that. And the other thing was also that going back to that, that time art thing, animation is a time art more so than cinema. Mm. Um, stop motion animation I can't even watch because it tortures me knowing how much work must go into that from you know breaking down so as animators we used to break down every exposure on dope sheets that, or dope charts they're called we used to write down every drawing and the fades and everything so you're kind of like the director set it up but then you charted all your things so it was quite a technical art and I think um, that kind of thing and also drama training help me imagine like breaking down things and seeing motions take place over time as well. And I wanted to bring um, that kind of scenic kind of thing, like building set pieces almost. Mm -hmm. I think my book seems like there's little set pieces in it, but that was intentional as well. I just wanted to create these little moments like scenes that were um, independent in some ways, more so in the earlier edit. Look, I, I think you put that, what the, the, what the way you described about the manifestations, like the different stages of creativity, spot on, my God, pattern that shit because that was very accurate. I can totally get behind that. I think as well, and I thought that maybe um, your animation background, because I'd like, I, and mind you, complete layman, okay, I only know just how time-consuming it is to just produce just the tiniest amount of material so i guess and i guess i guess it's less it's less about the the 
actual creation of the writing. And I guess it's more just the attitude of allowing you just to accept shit takes time and to very, yeah, 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 very yeah. laboriously taking Absolutely. time. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to, um, I just want to mention really quickly, I don't want to bang on about too long. Good but I went to, um, I went to um, the artist Marina Abramovich's residency at the Wharf Theatre here. She did the artist's present where she, um, you know, she just, she sat down and then the viewers came down and you just faced her and she did this endurance thing for months at MoMA in New York. And I'd watch the, um, the film of that. And she was doing this residency at Wharf for 12 days or something. I just went along and, oh my goodness. I was like, I went night because it was school holidays and I wasn't working. I went for nine days and it's like just completely transformed my life in the sense of the fruit of that afterwards because she did this thing where she removed herself from her usual practice and she was there, but she was encouraging 12 other artists. But she set up, she'd done it once before somewhere, but it was the second time she'd set up these practices so that the participants actually did what she would normally do. And there was this thing called the something power platform or something just stood up on these raised platforms and just stood there still and Samuel I stood on it for five hours without moving I just stayed still for five hours just frozen and you know what happened which is incredible which is it completely changed my life I actually um shifted time okay you'd like transcended yeah the the perception of time so much so I didn't know what was happening when it happened I was also, I was just absolutely still. I had a revelation that at that point that the book was going to go ahead and just, so I just started weeping in the middle of it after about three hours. I I just heard your book will get picked up by another publisher and it's going to get published after my initial publisher dropped me. And then I was watching people walking along doing this slow kind of Zen thing where you walk really slowly. It was another exercise and I'm going, oh, it must be finishing time because I saw them start moving at normal speed. And I went, oh, I must be closing time. And I was thinking I had to leave. And they just kept going and going and going. And then I realised they were actually walking in extreme slow motion, but I was seeing them at normal pace and time sped up right to the end of the session. And it was just incredible. And then I was euphoric afterwards and the stage manager came up to me and said, oh, Marina Abramovich would like to speak to you one time. And I said, why? And they said, oh, because we observed you just staying still for so long and I didn't end up meeting her but I I met some interesting people but the thing was I realized watching it that I had professionally broken down movement Mm. in my job animator and so as I was watching for hours people walk past I saw them I saw my experience of breaking down a walk cycle because walk cycles and horses galloping and that kind of stuff they're the foundation or you know cats jumping and animals moving learning all that inherently um i realized even though i kind of like look back into some regrets i realized that i'd picked up this art of being able to capture human movement and 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 seeing it just slowed down and sped up i went it was just it was just a profound experience sorry i'm babbling on yeah. No, I'm enjoying. No, it's not because it seems to have. I mean, obviously, it was a momentous occasion. It was a defining one because it, 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 it was kind of like a, you you were graduating from like a being a being a Padawan to a Jedi Jedi Master Jedi Knight because you <laughs> you had then you would reach this point you had transcended where you then realised that you that you then have all the core skills I guess to to then obviously to undertake this incredible and for you as yet un, unprecedented undertaking of this novel. Yeah, not yeah, only that. Yeah, yeah, the final surge. Yeah, yeah, and then not only that, but you had a voice literally telling you that that um, that this was going to happen. So it's, I feel like sounds, that's you go. It sounds schizophrenic, but like it really happened. I um, I also had she had this other thing like this set up of about like fifty or sixty camp beds, and you you just got led by one of the facilitators into this camp bed on the wall theater, and they put you down, they tucked you in, and you just lied there, and I was going. I just lied there for ages because I taught the history of those finger wharfs at Walsh Bay. So I knew, and I taught like, and I, or like the plague resumption period. It was like, so, and I realized then also the importance of place and setting 
Mm-hmm. And when I went back to work at Hyde Park Barracks, I transformed how I taught even down to like year two and three into respect for place and to focus. And I can now, when I lead my groups, I can just do these techniques of drawing even primary school students into a bare or like minimal area and then bringing the story to life by getting them to come right into it. And I hope that happens with books as well, that, you know, with minimal detail, which is a skill in itself because I'm a bit blah, 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 blah. But yeah, so that was another massive lesson. It is a skill in itself. And I mean, yeah, I'm with you on that as well. I'm so I'm certainly guilty of it too. And yeah, it, ta- it takes time. And I guess it's just with repetition of editing and editing and editing. So let's um let's talk, let's talk a little bit before we finish up. Let's talk about the editing because you I, I touched on it at the very, very beginning, but I wanted to, I really wanted to hear from you about it because I've been in the same sort of boat where I've had gigantic kind of like absolute colossal of colossus of, of manuscript. And, and I wanted to know with you, so tell me, cause you, cause it was, it was we, obviously I, it, I said a thousand pages. That was incorrect. It was a trim 870 or something. It was so, trim. Yeah. So a nice lean 870 pages. So tell me, so where did, so, so you, so you, so you had started uh, sending it out and then, and then someone had seen the promise in it and then, the publisher said, you, how, did, how, did, how did the process go, first and foremost? Okay, with, with so um, when, my, when there was, um, when my first publishers, um, I kind of, they, oh, without going into it too much, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. But sure, sure. There was stuff that was beyond my control with the publishing house and what happened to them, and no one contacted me. Oh, I just, oh, so, I, okay. so I just kept working. Okay, <laughs> God. For years and years and years past the deadline. For years, years past. Like like maybe seven years past the deadline. And then they contacted me and said, oh, how's your manuscript going? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm just waiting for feedback from the test readers. And they said, um, oh, I don't know how much to say, but I, I, will, I will tell you this without Well, just very anything. truncated, very truncated very truncated, non-litigious uh, possible version, I reckon. Okay. Oh, no, no, they just, they just, um, and I ended up being dropped. Okay. And then. Rough. And then went to, and then, um, and then wonderful, um, um, Penguin picked me up. Yep. Penguin Random House picked me up. So um, just through contacts, because I'd already written it and they didn't want it, the earlier one, they didn't want to see it, even my finished manuscript. And then, so I was really like completely blown away when um, when when Penguin um, wanted, to, wanted to publish and mm. it was massive. And they said, you know, on the proviso, not straight away, they said, you know, like you need to do restructuring and come, we're interested, come back. Mm. So Sam, I did two, like on just getting into editing, I did two massive restructures mm. and that was really hard because of the parallel stories. So mm. they got an editorial consultant on me and then she suggested these, all these changes and it was so hard, like so hard because they, it didn't all match. And then one of my, um, a, a lady who I've become very good friends with, Drusilla Majesco, is a very established writer. She said, Bernard, you need to just, you need to write out what's happening in every chapter. So, and I did that a couple of times. And it was, my mum helped me relate. I physically laid all the pages down in my parents' apartment, in their hallway, because it didn't even fit in their apartment, because my little studio is too small. And with my mum, my mum helped me restructure it because she knew the story so well. So I physically restructured and wrote notes and it took a day on the floor, you know, with these post-it notes. And then, and then from there it was like edits after that. Oh, my goodness. It was like, but my editors, um, Tom and Catherine at Penguin, were just wonderful. I loved having that relationship with them. And they oh, just worked so, yeah, Tom and Catherine, they did so much work and I was so dedicated, yeah. So it was a real pleasure to to go into on. To so how? And and so I should mention. So Nikki Krista, 
is my publisher at Penguin. And, mm. and when she saw Promise and everything, it was a massive, massive blessing. And she's just been absolutely lovely to me. And Tom and, um, uh, Tom and, and, and Catherine Hill, my editors. So how did you... Um, so you, you laid it all out. You literally, bless mum, she, she helped too. How did you go about literally um it must you must have had to you must have had to scrap like like a hundred thousand words or something or like like pretty much a novel's worth already so how did you go about having a, obviously because you have to have an element of brutality with that or kind of cold medical clinical precision of chopping it but then still retaining the story that you wanted to tell how did, how did that go about can you can you still hear me yeah oh good Oh, sorry, my, my, my screen's just gone. Oh, really? Get it back. Yeah, yeah, but it's all good because we're just audio, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see you. Oh, cool. I can hear you all as well. Okay, phew. Um, I, I, I just got my computer fixed and the screen went again. Um, how do I go about the process of chopping? Yes. Yeah, um, so some of it was pretty brutal. Um, some of it, yet you, I pushed back on. Yeah, it's like mandatory state and they're really amenable to like the pushbacks generally. Um, I wanted to please them. Samuel, the best thing ever though, the best thing ever was when they were dubious about something and then it made me super dubious. I don't know if you had this experience, but then reworking it and I turn around these scenes into some of my favourites. Oh, man, that's so good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was so good. Like just these deadwood scenes that were kind of like, action or like engagement wise not working but they're important parts of the story mm, mm. and when they um when i turn them i worked really hard to do it so that was kind of exciting but some of the um some of the um cuts are a bit heart-wrenching but the whole kill your darling thing is yeah <laughs> completely true yeah absolutely it's necessary but yeah it's tough i just like as soon as i'm I heard that story and uh, I saw in your acknowledgements there, I just knew that I wanted to talk to you about, about that because yeah, I, I just know that it would have been an absolute punish uh, to do, but obviously you've made mention of them. You just had a, you had a really good kind of like onboard editorial team that were um, real fluid when it came to, you know, creative input. And then obviously it just kind of worked from there and it was just the whittling process kind of uh, eventuated from that, I guess. Yeah. And um. It's really funny. I can, I can still. It, back to the animation thing. We could watch it. Like we could watch a show, and Samuel, we could see. Like everyone could see when we watched it the same show when the scene changed. Which we could name which animator had done each scene. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. We just knew these slight nuances. And now I can read my book, and I can remember it. Most of the edits and who mm. did the edit, I can like I go, and I can tell the tone and what I kind of and my issues and agreements and whether it sounds good or not is still inside me. It was that involved, you know, because some stuff you agonise over. Like, a, I mean, when you write it, I would sometimes get crack a sentence in a day. Yeah, not and here. So, yeah, and so with some of the edits, it was like I'd like call up my you know, friends that know me inside out and have this big thing or carry around something. They want to do this. Yeah, but it was generally just a wonderful experience. Oh, good, man. It sounds like, especially with what you're talking about there, it's kind of like that, uh, that uh, the old expression of it takes a village to raise a child, only yeah. the village is within you because <laughs> yeah. the village is comprised of you and the editors and the child is the novel kind of yeah. thing yeah that's just yeah. that's just my take on it well boom let's yeah. uh let's end with a question that i kind of wanted to ask you because again you, your story is unique what you've done is unique and i wanted to know what advice would you have given to yourself before you started writing this novel back in the day oh <laughs> <laughs> oh, i don't want to say don't do it um because that's really negative um Oh, buckle yourself in for the long for the long journey. I'd say um, I would, I would. Oh, I can I, I can actually answer that. I would say, believe that you will believe 
four ways that you will manifest this. Like don't, because those doubts, you know, the inner critic is so volatile that hence the character homunculus in the book was because mm. my own inner critic was just savaging me at points about it moving ahead. Mm. And right now, Samuel, I'm just all about, I'm getting really visual again at the moment um, with to try and get myself motivated for ideas for whatever form I do next. So I don't know what it is, but it's a, I've got this, I've just learned, I'm as old as I now am, I've just got this, this absolutely new and exciting and thrilling belief that I can manifest what I envision. And it's mm. like really profound. I'm like, um, partly because of, I, I set myself these projects and I go, and I've given myself these, time and I go, Bernard, you can envision things now and, and manifest them. So this word manifest is massive in my life at the moment. Mm. And so I would encourage anyone to start with that belief that if you stick to your vision and work hard, you can actually manifest it into a thing. Absolutely. And that was the most exciting about a book. It becomes a thing. Man, spot on, spot on. So so you're finding yourself now at a crossroads determining what you're next going to do, what sort of medium, what sort of project. Yeah, yeah, but there's um, there's just like, there's magic in it. There's this kind of like, I tell myself as well that I'd find these magic kind of milestones and synchronicities to, to keep me going. So at the moment, I just made um, this... Um, me and my friend Amy made this costume for the Sydney Writers Festival debutante ball. And I, and I just, I drew the sketches. And when I saw I was making it come into being, it, we reached in the costume making this point of stepping over the threshold of it going from a vision into um, better than the vision. Mm, mm. And, so, and then I just made this other shirt that I've got on today. And it says Ithaki, Ithaka, the island of Odysseus. And that's where my ancestors come from. Mm. And so I just made that. I just drew it up and then made it into a T-shirt. I was wondering about that shirt, actually. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's Odysseus in the middle. And it says in ancient Greek, it says Ithaki. And then I went to a um, Greek restaurant and I had this shirt on and I had this feeling about it. And someone came up to me in the restaurant, I won't say who it is, but someone came up to me and said, why have you got that shirt on? Why are you wearing that shirt? And I said, because that's where my ancestors come from. Mate, he goes, that's where I come from. I'm from Ithaki. And I went, oh, it was so weird. I kid you not, Samuel. He said, where, where'd you get it? And I said, I made it myself. And he was really impressed. And then he said, I've designed myself a watch with Ithaca on it. And I said, what? And he um he had it on. And this is just on Wednesday night. And I said, can I see it? And he took his watch off. And there was a Greek boat on the back of his watch engraved on it. And it said Ithaca on it, on his watch. Yeah, so, and I went, it's just confirmation that you need manifesting what's in your in your whatever's like brewing in the zeitgeist or in your psyche, it creates this kind of magic and connection. So that I'm just exploring that. I so does. And so like, does. I'm totally on board with that as well. I do believe in the manifestation of, of self and, and what you, what you perceive. It's, it's interesting because you kind of want to don't, don't want to go down that, that they're kind of like the secret, the secret sort of um, ideology, but at the same time. No, no, no. no. <laughs> 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 But but it's no, true, I don't mean to sound like I don't mean to sound like that. No, no, like, no. you don't. Um, you don't. I'm saying you don't. But like I do. I'm, I'm I'm on board with it. I agree with it. I truly do think that if you if you do, if you do have this manifestation of self in terms of what you what you want or what powers your soul, then it, it will eventuate. It will eventuate. You will, you yourself through your own actions will then will then sort of uh, see it eventuate. So, Bernard, man, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, absolutely brilliant chat you're 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 a very interesting fellow i like hearing about like how you're i really want to know a few things and i'm glad you got to talk about them and tell me a little bit about them particularly about your animation beginnings and how that kind of then served to 
to inform or, or kind of uh, help shape what you ultimately did with your, with your book there. So thank you so much for talking today on the Right Way program about the origin of me. Uh, Samuel, it was, a, it was a blast. It was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you for all your perceptions and your brilliant questions. It was really fun. Oh, bless you, man. I like hearing that. Thank you. So everyone, that was Bernard Gorlake talking to me about his debut novel, The Origin of Me. Uh, Standard Fair, what I'm going to do, as I always do, is I'll put the links uh, to Penguin Random House, the good folks that publish Bernard's The Origin of Me debut novel, uh, into the bio slash description of this particular episode that you'll be able to see there on SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening to this on. Uh, so huge, huge thanks to Bernard for sharing some insight into some candid insight into his process and how he came about writing the origin of me and finalizing it and such for your now reading pleasure available for you in all good bookstores nationwide. Uh, again, as I always say, thank you so much for listening to this episode and I'm hoping all others, if you haven't already, please follow on Spotify there. Click that, click that button there for you. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for listening, for passing the good word on. I'm assuming that there's a lot of word of mouth going on because the numbers keep growing. So I'm really appreciative uh, of that. Rest assured, I've got a lot more guests coming up for you as well in the coming weeks and months. And, you know, maybe now from here to eternity, why not? Uh, let's let's just keep doing this. Obviously, I love speaking to writers about their craft or creatives about their craft, like talking to Richard about his acting the other day, you know, so I'm just going to keep on keeping on doing that. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your patronage and I hope you all have a lovely weekend.